to the banister of love. The banister of love. <laughs> Which happens to be a fascinating aspect to one of the cases we've been talking about. This is part three and, of our case study. Yeah, and uh, and it, it ends quite well for, for us anyway, for, and, for, yeah, our, for our, client. our client. So what we were talking about before is this, this need to bring applications to use evidence in the possession of the accused that has to be brought now because of the new legislation has to be brought before you go to trial. But this is the first case that we've worked on together where we we brought a, a mid-trial application. Right. And, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, there was some dispute at the beginning of the legislation whether or not it would only be constitutional if the applications were brought after the complainant testified mm -hmm. in chief, which means the Crown calls them and they ask them, you know, to tell your story. That's in chief. And then you go into cross-examination. So there was, uh, you know, Supreme Court decided that it wasn't uh, proper to do that. Yeah. And it does cause trial delays if you have to do these mid-trial. Um, so this was the first one that we brought. And, and it's because as a result of the way the complainant testified, there was some pretty graphic evidence in our possession that we didn't use initially then became relevant because um she essentially i said she doubled down on what she was saying despite the non-sexual evidence that we were putting to her yeah so to frame this for you so in so now we were well into cross-examination of the complainant and brilliantly i brilliantly done by the way sorry <laughs> brilliantly done oh, <laughs> <laughs> um and and in cross-examination i was putting to her uh, all of the material that we had and uh, was admitted through the initial 278 uh, application. And what I was focusing on at that point was her continued communications with my client, not communications initiated by our client, but communications initiated by, by her, the interesting content of those communications, the desire that we saw for some form of reconciliation, and for still a financial um, commitment by our client to support this individual, and in fact, what we were suggesting was periods of time that they had that they had met up. Well, there was a desire for a wedding, which was made quite clear at one point, in which months after she's allegedly not speaking to him anymore with no desire to reconcile, she says, "I'll hold hands and I'll kiss you, but nothing more unless they get married." Unless we get married. So after about four or five hours, six hours of cross-examination, um, the complainant was doubling and tripling down that at no time did she make any plans to meet our client. At no time did she attend at our client's residence. And we gave specific dates um, spanning a time span. I think it was February to in, and two in March or three in March, for example. And... The complainant was just obviously not thinking that we had evidence, mm -hmm. thinking that they were. She was in the clear. Never set foot in his home. Yeah, absolutely. Never. I would went never to his do home. that. I was just, I was just leading him on, or or not saying anything because I just wanted to buy myself some time. I still don't quite understand what she was trying to suggest there. Yeah. Um, but like, just sort of like placating him for the time being. And when I was questioning her, I was saying, "So when you say this message." that I love you, sweetie, you're the best person on earth, you're such a sexy man. Um, so you're just saying that to placate him. Yes, that's correct. But there's like tons of these messages. But literally this complainant dug in uh, on, on 
on obvious problems. Like, it, yeah. I, we, I couldn't have dropped enough hints. Like, are you sure you didn't attend at his house on March 19th between 4 and 9 p.m.? I, I could have gone more, but like, you know, no, I never, never set foot in his house. Absolutely not. You're lying, Mr. Newberger. One of the fascinating things to me was that while looking at the text messages, she continued to insist that she never communicated over text while also saying yeah, that yeah. text messages missing from the exchange. <laughs> so I it was just like, well, if you never actually, if you never talk to him, then how can you be sure that there's messages missing? But so let's no, talk no, about just, just it's it's funny when you get people backed into a corner where, you know, and, and here's the thing about these applications. So, so interesting. So we've said this in another episode that, again, we've decided to disclose everything. So complainants start to now try and outthink us. Uh, they want to preempt my cross-examination and think of a way to get around it. And one of the ways they were thinking about it is, no, no, I wasn't really messaging with him. I don't know. What do you call these things? And then saying, well, there's messages missing. I go, oh, who cares? We've got your, <laughs> we've got your emails or, and your messaging. Here's what you're saying. You've said that. Yes, I said that. But there's others missing. I don't care. This paragraph. Can you explain this paragraph? There's stuff missing. It was just absurd. So let's let's explain you know this term the banister of love. So what what turns out? <laughs> well, let's just before we get, you're going to explain. I'm going to give that all to you. Okay. Okay. So there came a point after hour five or six where we said, okay, enough, and we were running out of time. So we said, let's take a break, Your Honor. But I'm giving you notice now. We're going to have to file a mid-trial application under Section 276 and 278 because there's other sexual activity and there's documents in that regard. And we're going to have to file a motion uh, for the court to consider whether we can use it. So that's the mid-trial application. First time we've done it. But enough was enough with, with her insistence that she had not. Frankly, I thought she was just going to say, yeah, no, I've attended. Yeah. But she didn't. It would have been wiser. Okay, so now talk so, about the banister of love and all this stuff. So after this, you know, numerous insistences over and over and over again, absolutely never set foot in his place, never wanted to see him again, only talked to him on email and uh, I wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, I was just trying to keep him away from me. We end up bringing an application to use a series of photos where they had a, a full-blown naked photo shoot in the, the hallway, the staircase of his home, which is posing, standing up on a The on banister a is a very significant prop in, in, in most of the pictures. The banister of The banister love. of love. And, um, and we're not saying this to him, like there's no names here. We don't want to embarrass people. Like, nope. knock yourself out. Do whatever makes you happy. Have fun. That's great. Just but, tell the truth. But just tell the <laughs> truth, right? I know. And uh, and then, you know, some other photos that show that she was in attendance at his home numerous times, every single date that you put to her, which she denied, you know. Oh, I'm in an Uber now on the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, so the application that we brought was we clearly laid it out this is what was said in trial this is why it's now relevant we did not try to get these into trial because they are very graphic all of this stuff we we, we again this is something to understand in case anybody's critical about defense lawyers we had these in our possession and decided we didn't want to use them because they were very graphic and we didn't think they were relevant we, i we really thought she'd go yeah no i i wound up going to his house a couple of times and you know, whatever. We did not want to do that. We didn't think it was, we thought we had plenty of material. This was just overkill 
and we wanted to be sensitive to those issues. But we had no choice. And also in our original application, some of the graphic images that were included in the subject matter of the charge, we we agreed to redact them because we didn't want to embarrass her. There was just right. an so agreement it, of what that photo yeah, was. Yeah, so instead of actually, then you seal the photograph and then we do a description of what the photograph says, which is protecting more of the privacy of the complainant. Mm -hmm. But because of, of how she had dug herself into this position. And there were partial redactions on what we filed in the mid-trial application. Right. Um, so we needed to bring this pre-trial application. And how compelling was this evidence? Well, you know, there were arguments against it. Although there was, I felt quite a bit of concession that they were probative, that there the, it was probative of a certain issue at trial given what was said. But they argued that the privacy rights outweighed the probative value. Ultimately, the judge then absolutely not given what was said and then in the manner in which it was said she uh, ended up granting us the use of all of the evidence yeah so so what's important is so the argument shifted because at this point what was very interesting and there is value to mid-trial applications and there is value frankly to the thought that these applications maybe should only be brought mid-trial after a complainant has testified or in cross because that's when they give you information that they think is going to get somebody convicted and it's actually a lie and then you can catch them with the material you have that's like the good old days when we didn't have to bring the motion but it, it's it's amazing that the argument it, it, it the crown and the complainant's lawyer got it that the jig was up yeah. and they said well it may indeed be probative but because these image these images are of such a highly intimate nature. It engages a very significant level of privacy that would be too invasive to the complainant to have them admitted at trial. That's essentially what the argument was. Leaving aside that it, it basically says the complainant is lying, so it's too intimate, so let's just go with the lie. I, have I have I got that right? That's essentially what the argument is. But just think about that for a moment. I know. Was they made the argument. There was another really interesting thing that happened that that uh, justified the mid-trial application, and that's that during the original evidence uh, at the beginning of trial, there was uh, new information that came out in which the complainant said that she got a restraining order against yeah. our client at a certain date and the crown had never heard this before and and then we they, they were wonderful got found the report pretty quickly yeah the crown and police officer really quick there was yeah there was in fact an occurrence from a date uh in either february or march where allegedly our client the complainant had said had followed her with her boss knocked on the window was harassing her and was highly stalking threatening her, and stalking and i guess thought that they could she could ambush us with this and we stopped and we asked for disclosure and fortunately there was an occurrence report mm -hmm. and then uh, the, the occurrence report says something entirely different <laughs> where she's just like she's like the, the officer saying well she came in and she said i need some advice because i'm having trouble breaking off my relationship with my ex and uh he gets along really well with my family and so it's making it really difficult and I, i'm not really sure how to handle it and the officer writes, there's absolutely no evidence of any 
um, criminal activity. No, th no threats, no assaults, uh, no evidence of criminal activity. No restraining order. There was just the officer advised both of them to stop talking to each other. Right. So that's presented. And then she ends we, up we saying... We have a gallery of viewers who are laughing at this, but it was amazing. <laughs> the report says nothing. And, and, and when cross-examined on that report, what was the response to cross-examination on the report? This uh, was almost better. She basically just said the officer did not correctly re record what she complained about and claimed that the officer actually took photographs from took images from her phone of <clears throat> excuse me of, of bruises and, a, and of actual physical violence that she was claiming took place and the officer says there's absolutely no evidence of any violence or any criminal activity and she's like no that's that's totally incorrect basically accused the officer of lying yeah i remember being criticized for a moment about I don't think Mr. Newberger, she why said would, why that it was a false, lie? that it was, that the report was false. And then I, then I turned to the complainant. I'm sorry. Is the content of this uh, occurrence report, in your opinion, false or accurate? No, it's false. Okay. That's <laughs> like, and so, and you might think for a moment that this is one extreme case. It's not. So in the last five years, we've had very complex, I mean, this office is filled with boxes. You know, A, because I'm not the best tech wizard in the world and I'm going to do everything on a laptop, I can't prepare for a case that way. Neither can you, right? I got to read everything. I like hard copy. I have hard copy. I had a binder today at trial. It's got sticky notes everywhere. It's the only way I can absorb shit. But the reason we have all these boxes is because these cases are not simple. They're complex. There's a lot of stuff in it. But this isn't just a one-off. We've had... I don't know. I, like, I can't even count how many complainants we've cross-examined in the last five years where there are when you dig like when you just start digging when you try and find source documents when you try and use the family court documents when you actually go speak to a witness maybe and you start digging you realize the absurdity and you start to uncover the fabrications and they hang on to these things and they make these absurd comments that one case we did we spoke about a long time ago where a complainant was so desperate to get access uh to get leverage in the family court proceeding she doctored a marriage Got a certificate fake marriage certificate i know paid a, an officiant to sign a false document i can't remember how many different ways she tried to explain that and we were able to establish this to the point but i we worked with the family law lawyer we were able to get the documents we pieced it all together we were able to cross-examine like who witnessed this what, your father and your your brother your brother's like what 16 at the time so it's not even oh adult. yeah he's not even a legal witness not even an adult Okay, and this was all to gain leverage for significant assets. Like, so our client was saying, we weren't legally married. So different rules apply for, for asset uh, division. Because they weren't together for very long, yeah. A year. And, and that's the length, and this was a sophisticated, smart person, this complainant, who maybe in all other aspects of her life is like nice, competent human being, but she went to the point of, of a fraud of a marriage, and the judge said she may have very well committed Several acts. And she tried to prevent him from having it annulled. <laughs> yeah, that's another funny one. So, so the judge said may have committed various acts. And then when in fact that was established in, in the, it's funny, in the family court proceeding, she was so hungry for the money that she actually wanted to prevent the marriage. She said, well, he won't give me a divorce. Yet her application was to prevent the court from granting an annulment of the marriage. Mm, until so this, she got her money. I want to stay married until I get the money. So this is this complainant who dug herself in again about getting a restraining order and the police, willing to throw the, the police under the bridge too. Uh -huh. Like they're lying, they're lying. 
they, they got no skin in the game on that one, right? It, this is not a one-off. But so, so on this particular case, so there is that extra occurrence report. Yeah, in ahead. this date, was it, it was March 16th, two of the, the occasions that she went to the home that we could prove that she was actually in attendance doing this photo shoot, yeah. the banister of love and all this other stuff, was within a week. Of this date. Of that, of that occurrence report. Yeah. Yeah, so just think about this for a second. So this helped with the relevance of what we wanted to admit. So the complainant had alleged, I think it was March 16th, yeah. that in fact she had um, contacted police because she was stalked. As soon as she was safe, she called police. They attended. She, she gave got a, a report, restraining order. Got a restraining order. You know, blah, blah, blah. Turns out the occurrence report doesn't say anything like that. There's no such occurrence that exists in the database at all. And photographic evidence places there's no her. No photographic in his evidence. Home there's naked. nothing. And then <laughs> on the nineteenth, one of the dates we cross-examine on, one of the series of photographic evidence we have is the banister of love, mm -hmm. and it's timestamp. We have the metadata. She looked so happy too. Maybe they were a having time. a good day. I mean, <laughs> you know, people have good days or bad days. But what's so stark is this allegation at trial that is stalking me on the 16th. I never went to the house on any of those dates. I would never set foot in that prison again. And literally, we are in possession of these things that we didn't use before. We're going, Jesus, f we have to use this. Like, this is insane. Mm -hmm. Literally, you're right. Within three days of that report, and it, and, and we still met with arguments that it was too prejudicial. It was too invasive into her privacy. So let's just go with a wrongful conviction then, ladies and gentlemen. If you really don't want it in as a crown at that stage, what's an option? Anybody in the peanut gallery? Let's say you're, you're caught in your prosecution where, where you know that your complainant's f***ing lying, okay? And you're concerned about how this evidence may be used because maybe you do feel it's very invasive. What's one option open to a prosecutor? Withdraw. Get them to, yeah, withdraw. Well, you're in a trial, so you pled not guilty. That's good. But what can you do that the judge has no say over? And the case. No. They can file. Stay the case. A, that's it. Yeah. The Crown can file a stay. And a judge is immediately what we call functus. No jurisdiction to overrule it. So you just stop the prosecution. It's a permanent stay. It's the same as not guilty under law. But the Crown can do that. Now, I'm not blaming the Crown because this was actually... Well, how this resolved actually was... The crown was, was very really fair, yeah. but it was just because. Here's the here's the phrase, when we won the application and all this evidence was going to be allowed into the trial, the complainant rage quit, did not want to testify anymore. So so once the ruling came down, I was allowed now to cross-examine her on these instances, and and she knew because obviously the lawyer said, well they got the images and the data <laughs> about when the images are from. I won't return for cross-examination. Yeah. you. I'm not coming back. And there was a brief recess uh, once the, we got the ruling from that. And the prosecutor, you said, was very fair. Directed verdict Didn't of not guilty. Yeah. Asked for a dismissal. She recommended a dismissal. And the judge said, I think that's very wise and well very done. reasonable. <laughs> very fair of you. But I'm just I, I just, I just say this once. So, you know, if... If, if there is the concern, and I'm not, I don't want to be taking this being harsh because the Crown did the right thing in the end. They were a very good Crown. We had a good relationship with, there was two Crowns involved in the case. Like them both. Yeah, she had to take over at the yeah. last minute. And so she was a bit behind the eight ball. Very good Crown attorney. I like her. 
hardworking. It's just the ethos which exists because they they are subject to the policies of the Crown Attorney's Office and who are their supervisors as to how you still have to run cases. And I think it's far better that when you realize that that really you're dealing with a case where there's fabrication, that really you you got to seek leave to withdraw or direct a not guilty verdict or f***ing stay the charge. But don't argue that imagery that you know directly contradicts everything that the complainant has been saying. Like, it's just stark. Yeah. Don't argue or allow a complainant's lawyer to argue that it's just too prejudicial. Because the, the, the other option then is to proceed with a sham. I'm sorry it's embarrassing for some people to be caught lying, but the worst thing is to have an innocent person go to jail. Yeah, yeah. And today, so sides your track, I'm, we're in Superior Court on a sex assault trial in front of a jury. I haven't done a jury since the new legislation came into place. And as I'm cross-examining and the complainant, uh, uh, the complainant's witness, a friend, is finally, I think, I got her to the point where she's going to tell the truth. And I'm like, look, this is really important. We don't want something bad to happen to Mr. Such-and-Such such if he didn't do it. So I want the truth. I, it's like I was in that movie for a moment, you know? I felt like a fat Tom Cruise or something. But anyways, um, it, I got there, right? But it was important to slow down because she was... Um, I don't know that she was lying so much, but she was, her memory was, as you you pulled out, her memory was infected by having heard things from another person yeah. where she then literally had said, now I've gone back and I rethink about what I saw. And now I, now I believe that that matches what I saw. And it was like, but what could you actually see? And uh, what did you see? And what is the truth here? Well, and, and given the physical, you know, the way things were arranged, it was like, could you, you couldn't actually see that. Yeah, we can't say more because it's still a but, trial. But, yeah. but this is just a real-time now example when we relate back to this case that we just finished of this three-part series. It's just, again, just how easy it is for somebody to not tell the truth. Maybe not even maliciously because this yeah. witness wasn't malicious. No, but they were so impacted by the talking of the complainant that she came to believe something happened that was impossible to happen. Frankly, physically, it wasn't able to happen. Yeah. And that's the same as a complainant who's so invested in seeing their former partner go to jail because whatever, maybe you know, they didn't have a great relationship, that they'll lie. Yeah. And then when they're caught, in this case, I refuse to come back. Mm -hmm. I know. But it is actually, you know, given the example that we were just talking about, what happened at the jury trial, it is important to, to realize that you're not always, we're not always saying that somebody's lying, that sometimes it's a reliability issue, not a credibility issue. We're not saying they're lying, we're just saying that they actually don't remember and that they're, or that their memories have become corrupted in some way. Yeah, so, the, you know, in the case that we were just finishing this three-part case study, I think we should pick another one, which would be a good example for us to go through, where we're talking about where the reliability of their memory and what they come to believe happened is different than reality. Yeah. And it's not somebody who's intentionally lying, but they're absolutely not reliable. And that happens too. Yeah. And that's a different kettle of fish because I don't think, you know, judges are pretty good about it. I don't know how juries are about it, but I don't think judges or the system is at the point yet 
where it wants to really consider what we talk about relabeling, about regret, and looking at it differently. You have an experience and you wake up the next day having been influenced by alcohol or other things, or your friends thinking you shouldn't have done this with that person, and it changes the way that you recall what happened. Your entire interpretation and feeling about how the, the event was has qualitatively changed because of that influence. But I don't think we're there yet to accept it in the, in, in the criminal justice system. And not just regret, I, I think to go back to something that uh, really resonated with a lot of people, especially we, we've heard from young women at university that said this is absolutely true, embarrassment. Yeah. That something happens, embarrassment is a powerful emotion and they want to get ahead of the story and put their own version out there first. And that's a big problem, especially at universities. Gossip, you know, there's a lot to talk about, about the peer pressure and gossip and how it can impact a young teenager or even somebody in their early 20s in an environment like that. The pressure can be enormous when they think they're embarrassed because of something and then they will go to, diff you know, to kill a mockingbird, you know, will go to different lengths to try and save their own uh, self-esteem. And it's, it can lead to absolute tragedies. And I, I think we should look at and pick a case because I think people would like it where we're not talking about so much fabrication, but we're talking about really, um, you know, a healthy bit about unreliability. Mm -hmm. Well, and we know that uh, a lot of these allegations take place with the use of alcohol. So that's uh, an interesting factor that needs to be looked at because... And, and, and the other thing was, because you pulled up that study some time ago from... Desitters, the Dutch study. The Dutch study. You know, there's not enough sociological studies being done about why people don't tell the truth in these circumstances, why either it's unreliable or it's fabricated. It's as if the system just wants to rely on, on the information provided by one particular group or organization which is not founded in, in true cases and doesn't want to explore what's really there. There is a real stop there, you know, a real barrier. You know, my favorite thing about that study, and this is based on self-reporting of, of um, people who've admitted that they were not telling the truth. Yeah. And then they were asked why. And the top second reason was, I don't know. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? I know. <laughs> I think it calls for more studies. All right, let's pick another case study then. So thank you all for watching. Um, please uh, like. subscribe. Hit like, notifications. Hit notifications. Share. 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 Say it all. Everybody say it for us. Like, share. 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 Michael. Share. Hit that notification button. Thank you. And thank you to all our viewers and to the, again, comments and emails that you send us. It's greatly appreciated. Good night.